What's in store for your business this week at Staples? Doing business like a CEO while saving like a CFO. Staples has all the supplies you need to run your business like a boss at prices that'll make your bookkeeper smile. Now that is an achievement. Everything from markers and pens to 2019 desk calendars. And right now, a 12-pack of Sharpie markers and an 8-pack of Expo dry erase markers are only $4.99 each. At Staples, where there's a whole lot in store. Ends one nineteen nineteen in-store only. Good evening. You are listening to the official 90th episode of Third Eye Cinema. Back after quite a long hiatus with one of our very first guests making a return engagement to discuss his new film media ventures. So stay tuned as we discuss Joe Sarno and more with Mike Rasso only here on Third Eye Cinema. Hall Jr. Probably you remember me from Ega and the Choppers and maybe the Sadist, but especially Ega. Well, I just want you to know you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hey, this is David Heavener from Twisted Justice and I have the Stranger, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hi, this is Richard Gabai, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hey, I'm listening to it too, so I better shut up so you can get back to the show. Hey guys, this is Rick Sloan. I am the guy who actually made Hobgoblins, and you are listening to Third Eye Cinema. I'll give you another one for Vice Academy. Hi, this is Rick Sloan. I'm the guy who made all six Vice Academy films, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. I do have 14 movies, but it's probably the two everyone knows. I know. <laughs> well, you know, that's what, seven or eight of them right there. I <laughs> uh, actually... <yeah. laughs> you know, there's something when half your career is all sequels. <laughs> We spoke with Mike Rasso at the very dawn of the Third Eye Cinema podcast over six and a half years ago. Mike was the man behind Pop Cinema, formerly known as EI Independent Cinema, whose many subdivisions and labels include Camp Motion Pictures, Retro Deduction Cinema, Shockerama, and Secret Key, among others, and now include his new venture, Film Media. Over the years, his various labels and sublabels have represented a major force in SOV and both the modern indie and softcore scenes, with major mainstream distribution through such once-mighty retail chains as Best Buy, Coconuts FYE, and Sam Goody, no mean feat concerning some of the edge-skirting content of the films and released there. But most importantly to our discussion today, he's been a major champion and source of home media releases of long-lost classic exploitation and sexploitation films by such directors as Joe Sarno, Nick Phillips, and Doris Wishman, and early starlets of the genre such as Renee Bond, Audrey Campbell, and Ushi Degart. In point of fact, you can make a strong argument that there have been three main champions and disseminators of the gospel of classic sexploitation, and particularly the center of Joe Sarno. They were the late Mike Vraney of Something Weird, critic Tim Lucas of Video Watchdog fame, and Mike Rasso. So, Mike, welcome back to Third Eye Center. It's Great. been a long time. 
It has been a long time. It's great to be back, and I can't believe how long it. Time just flies. Literally. It's crazy. Six and a half years. Wow. So refresh our memories after such a remove. Even before the current film media restorations, which we'll get to shortly, your retrospection cinema line seemed strongly, if not primarily, driven by Sorno. And you did, in fact, have quite a bit of contact with him, even getting him to direct one or two of his final pictures. So tell us how you managed to get in that situation in the first place. Back in... I guess it was the the late 90s, we launched a label called Seduction Cinema. And this was a label of films that we produced in-house. We made the movies. And those films, uh, such as <laughs> such as Titanic 2000, uh, The Erotic Witch Project, Vampire Seduction, Caress of the Vampire, it was at the dawn of DVD. And we were... At the, we were at the right place at the right time. So those titles got amazing distribution nationally. So they wound up front and center in, in major stores like Best Buy and FYE and Coconuts and all these stores. So because of the placement, we started getting cold calls. And the first one was from a producer named Chris Neby, who produced three of Joe Sarno's uh, German films. Right. And he called, you know, he said, oh, hello, I'm Chris Neby, uh, in his accent, of course. Uh, have you heard of Joe Sarno? I said, no. No, I, I, I thought, and I didn't. I, I really? Didn't, yeah. I, I didn't. I wasn't, I, I mean, I wasn't that aware of Joe Sarno's films. He sent me some screeners of the three films. They were amazing. And uh, we licensed them and then eventually bought out those rights for those three German films. And then at the same time, Sam Sherman, who a fellow New Jersey resident, uh, Sam Sherman, of course, uh, owner of uh, uh, Independent International Pictures with his partner Al Adamson, made some great drive-in movies. Yeah. We were, at that time, our office was in Montclair. We were called EI Independent Cinema at the time. And he just knocks on our door. First he called, but then he came over, and he just said, oh, you know, what do you think about putting out some of my pictures? And then he said, oh, do you know about, do you know about, do you know who Joe Sarno is? <laughs> and Sam bought the rights to uh, Inga, Seduction of Inga, and Swedish Wildcats. Inga, he bought from Jerry Gross, who was the original Canon, Canon Films, and Seduction of Inga and Swedish Wildcats right from the producer, Vernon Becker. So the Chris Neby films were coming in. The Sam Sherman-owned films were coming in. So that launched, pretty much launched, Retro Seduction Cinema. And then Sam, you know, DVD was new. So Sam was like, well, you know, because I said, well, you know, we need some extras. He said, well, let's go see Joe, as Sam would say. Why don't we go meet Joe? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so in the late 90s... Uh, um, Sam Sherman and I went to New York to Joe Sarno's apartment. I met Joe's wife, Peggy. And as you can say, or someone can say, it was kind of a match made in heaven. And then from there, it was really just like a snowball rolling down the hill. Uh, as we started putting these releases out, there became uh, a new appreciation for Sarno films. And simultaneously, or maybe a little bit before, Mike Vrainy of Something Weird Video was also had some Sarno films in his library, Sin in the Suburbs. Right. Uh, he had quite a few, as a matter of fact. And he was putting them out on VHS, then on DVD through, I think, Image, Image Entertainment. Yeah. So I think between myself and my company and Michael Vrainy and his company, Sarno had a really nice uh, presence in the home video market. Sure. 
So what is it about Catholicism, perhaps particularly among <laughs> Italian Catholics, that managed to instill so much darkness and guilt on those who grew up in it? I mean, Joe's films are incredibly cynical and have this Hobbesian view of humanity and relationships per se. Well, I am Italian Catholic. <laughs> oh, That's why I asked. <laughs> I think it was Joe's upbringing. Uh, Joe's, dad, uh, jo- Joe's dad was uh, Italian-American and Joe's mom was uh, Jewish. And that's where you see, I think, this cross, great crossover in Joe's work. Uh, and when you look at a title like A Touch of Genie, you see like Yiddish theater yes. and Jewish comedy. And then uh, in some of Joe's black and white work, you see kind of, you know, stereotypical thuggy looking people. Joe is, uh, Joe was, Joe was uh, a very interesting guy. And I think he is so interesting because there were so many people, uh, so many unknown people making the type of films. I mean, there's so many films that are, you know, sort of have nameless people making them, especially in the in the mid '60s to to the late '60s, and then into the early '70s, were hucksters who ran theaters. <laughs> really, were just looking for product, right? And Joe gave them what they needed, and a heck of a lot more. And that heck of a lot more uh, wasn't like something that was required. The story, the psychological aspect of it. Yep. I'm just thinking that. Uh, I mean, Joe was just the kind of guy who, I mean, that's the way he thought. He had it in him to like, oh, I'm going to make a movie and I'm going to make, you know, something kind of compelling. When I sit down and I watch Sin in the Suburbs, I watch it once a year or so. I can't believe how amazing the story is. And then in context of the year it was made, you look at it and you're like, wow, that's a bit advanced for 1964 or 1965 when it was made. I just think Joe was a a talented storyteller, and he had it in him. And he really um, wanted to make a movie, not just crank out some scenes with some filler in between. So having known and worked with Joe and Peggy, who appeared in several of his and a few other films of the era under the name Cleo Nova, what do you think inspired his attention to cinematography and lighting? Because it seems unlikely from his persona that he was deliberately setting out to take the grindhouse into the art house or that he actually saw himself as the Sven Nyquist of softcore porn. Joe worked with some really good people. Joe worked with some amazing camera people. And in recent years, talking to Peggy... Uh, for example, uh, Peggy's brother, uh, Stephen Silverman, uh, was a cinematographer on the, the German films right. and quite a few others. And, and talking to Peggy recently, um, we have a uh, Blu-ray. The next in the Joe Sonor, Joe Sonor Retrospect series is um, All the Sins of Sodom and uh, Vibrations. And she was just talking about both those films of how... Uh, Steven Silverman was an apprentice on some of the earlier films. So he was there, but he wasn't the director of photography. But then Joe had an opportunity to make All the Sins of Sodom, Vibrations, and Wall of Flesh. And they were made back-to-back in a very small studio space in Manhattan on almost no budget. And literally, if you watch these movies, they're they're so classic Sarno because he takes what he doesn't have, which is a set, and he takes a blank wall and just illuminates it in a way... That allows you to see, you know, everything's very dark except for like the shadows on the face. I mean, the vibrations lighting is amazing. And that was Joe seeing. Joe had an amazing eye for talent. And that talent is behind the camera and in front of the camera. And he knew that, just knew by instinct that Steven Silverman had that talent. 
and gave him the opportunity to say, well, why don't you, there's no budget, so maybe he couldn't, didn't have any option, <laughs> but why don't you be the director of photography on, on these movies? So Joe worked with great, great people, and he allowed them to do their craft and still, you know, they all work together so he, he can get what he wants. And some of these behind the scenes that we've captured over the years of, of our interviews with Joe, it's some of it's very, it's just amazing to listen to. Yeah. So Joe is generally celebrated for his darker New York period, some of the films you're just discussing, actually. And this is the better part of what cult film fans were exposed to through Mike Franey and Tim Lucas. But where you seem to come in and brought the peers that I prefer, the later 60s transitional Swedish films and the more hard R films of the early to mid-70s, where he worked with folks like Mary Mendham, who was also Rebecca Brooke, Chris Jordan, Eric Edwards, effectively porn stars, but ones who tended to be known for their more thespian leanings. You know, some of the most capable actors of that scene if you will. It's also interesting to me because even among fans of the earlier Sarno work, you'd always hear grumblings about his supposed decline into using these people. And yet, these films are often just as strongly scripted, acted, and even more beautifully filmed than his Chiaroscuro period from the 60s. Yeah. And I think that in this sense, just as much as your status as one of the only two distributors of Sarno films, you bring something additional and unique to the table, getting folks to appreciate and celebrate his perhaps unjustifiably less faded work. His 1970s period is, is almost like a rebirth in the sense uh, of he, he has the, the amazing 60s period, his black and white films. And then and many of these films you just talked about are, are you know, I, I always say this, you know, pre-Deep Throat and post-Deep Throat. Yeah. Once Hardcore uh, exploded on 42nd Street and beyond, Joe had less and less softcore work. But... I think there was enough of a gap and enough of a period. So let's say between, oh, 1972 and 1976 or 77, uh, those are very special, very special films because, as you mentioned, they're in color. Uh, they're crafted just as beautifully. And they certainly show more than his 1960s film from a uh you know uh, exploitation perspective or the amount of nudity involved but he still shot them in a way i think the cast was more liberal so joe would always say oh if the cast wants to have sex during the shooting that's fine but i'm shooting at softcore the liberal wife swapping swinging 70s uh, allowed joe to explore very many of the same themes from the 60s but also but in a new fresh perspective and as you mentioned he tapped into an all-new ensemble cast uh mary mendham aka rebecca brooke uh eric edwards uh, harry reams and was able to sort of get an ensemble going even though they're not hardcore they are really hot films especially if you look at something like uh bb or butterflies which is interesting. Butterflies is interesting because two cuts of the film exist. Chris Neeby went back and shot hardcore inserts with the same, <laughs> with the same clothing but not the same actors. <laughs> and you look at Butterflies in the softcore version, which is so amazingly hot, you can't imagine why he would want such a thing. Uh, I'm not sure if Joe worked on the inserts or not. Uh, in the last years of Joe's life, I mean, there was a renaissance of touring with Abigail Leslie is back in town that played right. in many theaters. I believe it played at the Warhol. It played at certainly, uh, there was the Turin Film Festival in Italy uh, and I, Alamo Draft House. 
the fans and programmers really took a great liking to that film, and it, it played quite often right before Joe passed away. Yeah, and even what you were talking about with the more freedom, he was already moving there anyway with Marie Forsa, because right from minute one, she was one of the most uninhibited actresses he'd worked with Yeah, to that point. Joe had very little interest in shooting hardcore films. He did. He did. He had uh, some good ones. Uh, yes. Inside Little Oral Annie. <laughs> yes. Uh, there was his uh, Distropix series of films that he did with Arthur Morowitz's company. It's called Distropix, and they may have been another name or so. Yeah. For that line, I'm not sure it was the theatrical line. Some of those were shot the same years he was working on his 1970s softcore films. You see, I'm not as familiar with Joe's hardcore right. uh, uh, films because he didn't put his name on them. Right. He, you know, like I believe um, he had a pseudo. I can't remember what it was. Well, inside Jennifer Wells might be credited to Jennifer Wells, which she had said in the interview. No, well, he, inside. Uh, it was a whole Inside series. Yeah, Inside Seeker, Inside Little Orlani, yes. Little Orlani Takes Manhattan. It's, I don't know how many films he did, maybe 10 films or so. And then, of course, there's the 1980s Vidway line, which I recently spoke to Peggy, Joe's wife, and I said, Peggy, what was your involvement with this? She said that she knows nothing about it and that in the 1980s. We're talking about mid to late 80s. Joe would go off. They were shot... the the. The 1980, late 80s Joe Sarno shot on video features were hardcore, and they were produced at Gerard Damiano's studio in Queens. Okay. And Gerard Damiano Jr. was the art director. Peggy said that Joe told her that he was going to do editing jobs. <laughs> so, And his name is not on these films. Right. So there's that whole series of films, too. You know, when people talk about Joe, I just think of Joe... Joe is a filmmaker's filmmaker. Joe just, he was all about getting the job done the best possible way. And he worked with whatever restraints or budget he had and just got it done. He was an amazing man. And I produced his last film and we were in pre-production on what would have been, I'm guessing would have been his last film. It's called Grand Openings. There's a script. It's featured in the documentary, the Wichter Erickson's documentary. It's on Showtime. Okay. Oh, A Life in Dirty Movies. Oh, yes. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Oh, you got to check it out. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have uh, heard the name. I work with Joe Sarno Media almost every day of my life since I since I met him till now. If I'm not if I'm not working on an actual restoration and I'm working on some promotional materials. If I'm not working on that, then you know, uh we're dealing with orders or pre-orders or fulfilling orders on existing Sarno films in the field. So very much he's, you know, Joe Sarno's with me all the time and uh, having known him the last 12 years of his life and seeing him so often and collaborating with him on one film than a possible last film, it's great. I'm just so happy to be sitting here even talking about it. Yeah. Hello there. I'm Bill Rabane. I'm always listening to Third Eye Cinema. Hi, this is William Graffay. Uh, I'm real happy to appear on Third Eye Cinema. Gene, the host, has been real kind to me and put up with all my BS. So uh, please turn in and listen to the whole whole little spiel we gave. Hope you guys <laughs> get something out of it. Hi, guys and girls. My name is Nico Mastorakis. And if it's all Greek to you, Google me. I have written, produced, and directed several movies. Not all of them good movies, some of them very good movies, but more interesting than the movies themselves is a lengthy interview at Third Eye Cinema. If you miss it, you don't like movies. 
Hello, everyone. This is Mark Polonia. And this is Tim Ritter. And you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. Be there or be square. <laughs> so you've taken something of a break from the film distribution scene, at least apparently. You know, when last we spoke six and a half years ago, we had a bit of a chat about the decline of home media and the impending end of the DVD life cycle. And yet here we are, closing on the latter half of a decade later, and they're still going relatively strong, you know, likely propped up by the greater definition and durability of the Blu-ray and something of a growing collector's market in terms of cinema. So my question here is twofold. First, what have you been up to for over the last six years or so? And second, what brought you back? The, the, the decline of the, the decline and erosion of the DVD market is, was a bummer. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, things were not what they were. Uh, so I still have my companies working in a very downsized situation. We, you know, it is in a bustling office with, you know, 15 employees and a separate office for Brett Piper to work on <laughs> his latest sci-fi movie. I mean, I look back and I think, oh, wow, we really had it going on, you know, in the early pop days, late, late EI pop days, early pop days. We had productions going on, one in California, one in Texas, one in England. Like, it was, you know, we had our in-house stars, Misty Monday and Darian Kane. It was, it, was, it was quite an experience. And I could just say, the last time we spoke, that was the kind of just the tail end of, you know, just exhaustion. Yeah. Uh, exhaustion. And um, I know the last time we spoke, we did put out that Inga double feature. Yes, yes. <laughs> Because I was waiting for that. And you, yeah. yeah, we did put out the Inga double feature re- reissue. Uh, it was just time for a break. So I, I'm, I was, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have uh, an excellent staff who could run things for me. And when I say take a break, I mean, I am a workaholic. I lived to work and I, I, I really, my work is my life. And as a filmmaker which most people don't even think of me as a filmmaker. People call me a distributor. People call me some other bad things. <laughs> people call me lots of stuff. But, no, you know, at heart, I got into this business to be a filmmaker. I got into this uh, business to make a movie, and I've only made one movie. It's called The Seduction of Misty Monday, and I haven't made a, a film since. And uh, so when we spoke last, I had re- rediscovered my still photography equipment, and, of course, the world went digital and uh, my heart is in film. So when I found all my gear, and I had quite a, quite a bit of it, I, I dug it out of my closet. I saw it was all working. I went online. I saw that there was an active uh, film photography enthusiast and shooters on such sites as Flickr and Photo.net. And I just started communicating with these people. And I, I just realized that, you know, I wanted to get back into the craft of, of making pictures. So I took the time to do that. And because of my broadcast experience before... Starting EI Independent Cinema, I worked for Comcast for six years and done tons of news work, you know, uh, production work, uh, you know, shooting, doing audio, uh, doing news, working for, you know, side jobs for E! Entertainment and all this really cool stuff. I mean, I I have that experience and, you know, I forget, you just take it for granted, like, oh, I'm a producer. So I had all this experience, so I just took that, that, you know, craft that I have and I decided to start a podcast specifically for film photography called Film Photography Project Podcast with my usual sidekick, John Fideli. And I was able to, since we last spoke, which was whatever, six, eight years ago, um, start really working on that and cultivating it and getting out of the office and doing photo meetups and meeting people. And then slowly but surely, 
the two worlds of you know what I was doing with home entertainment and film photography just sort of began to merge with the fact that there is a day doesn't go by when I don't have my hands physically on a piece of film, whether it's shot film or unexposed film that I'm developing in the darkroom. So for me, very much like Joe Sarno, it's all about the craft. It's sort of like all the films I've produced over the years, and there's quite a few. And I, can t- I could laugh about it and say, oh, you know, most of them are crummy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's never really about what the movie is. Like, you know, Splatter Beach. I, you know, I value relationships. So I made Splatter Beach in 2006 with Mark Polonia the, and John Polonia, the Polonia brothers, and Brett Piper worked on it. Yep. And that's what it was about for me. It was about putting this group of people together with a small budget to go out to western Pennsylvania, pack up some of our in, in-house stars, <laughs> send them on the road, and they converge and they make this movie. See, that's what it's about for me. That's what keeps me going. It has very little to do with the finished product of whether you like it, dislike it, whether it's a hit, whether it's not a hit. So that's what it's all about for me, and that's what kind of brings it together. So in film photography, it's about, oh, well, what camera are you using? What film did you put in it? Oh, what are the results of that? And it's like, whoa. You know, I look at some of my podcast listeners' work, and I'm like, wow, you took this 1960 camera with this type of film, you put it together, you developed it yourself, and you have an amazing eye and talent and I look at this finished photograph I'm like that's amazing and when you look at photography it evokes a feeling from people if you can evoke a feeling from someone from looking at a picture then you're an artist to me you're an artist and you've accomplished what you set out to do so of all the films I made all the year some of them evoke nothing (laughs) some of them don't evoke any response some evoke like joy because they're so haphazardly made like back backyard epic i'm cool with that i'm totally cool with that and i appreciate the like from mark polonia who i'm now working with on a new film this summer called iso which is called iso in search of and to me you know especially in the last two years and with the collapse of the home entertainment business it humbled me extreme extremely i'm extremely humbled by it all and really got back to basics and those basics are that i value the relationships of the people i work with so mark is an incredibly sincere guy who really just loves making movies that's true and what happens is if a film is not a hit then i always say well just put it on the shelf for 30 years (laughs) true it'll come around you know so now this year later this year i'm reissuing uh Mark and John Polonia's Splatter Farm. Nice. It was uh, released in 1987, you know, and it has like a cult. There's like a resurgence of VHS collectors who are searching out all these obscure original indie releases. Yep. So to me, it's tapped into something with those collectors of like they have an emotion in their body that connects to their childhood of to them when they were 15 they went to a video store and they saw these amazing films on the shelf yep. and I'm fortunate enough to be working with the people who created this so now we can reissue like a collectible VHS big box I was going to say the clamshells yeah. yeah with a commentary and you know the, that fan can reconnect with that and that's that's you know that's what it's about for me you know it's not about the sale I, I, I sure I need money I, I need money to survive but <laughs> You know, as I mentioned before we started recording, you know, I'm comfortable with it all. I don't live 
to to book a, a title to get it sold to. I was going to say blockbuster. <laughs> wow! You know so, how many places went down? Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like I, it's not what I'm about. It's, it's just about the craft. Yeah. Hi, people. I'm Giovanni Lombardo Radice. You might know me with my stage name of John Morgan. I've been in many horror movies for the years, working with masters of the genre like Fulci, Margariti, Diodato, and <clears throat> Lenzi. So you are listening to Third Eye Cinema, and I hope you will enjoy. It was hard not to laugh out loud when you said that about Lenzi. <laughs> and I can't, I can't name Lenzi without underlining somehow my feelings, you know. <laughs> stronger than myself. I can't help it. Hi, this is Tim Lucas, the editor of Video Watchdog Magazine, and when I'm recovering from a cold, I like to recover with a nice hot toddy and a good listen to Third Eye Cinema. Hello, this is Herschel Garden-Lewis. You may know me from some of my movies, such as Blood Feast or 2000 Maniacs. And you know what I'm doing right now? The same thing you are, listening to Third Eye Cinema. Join me there. Wow. Those were both fantastic. <laughs> okay, that'll be about $22,000 each. <laughs> I see nothing's changed on your rent, Herschel. <laughs> That's how I live, Dave. That's it. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Roberto Finlay, devout listener of Third Eye Cinema, also director and DP of such sterling cinema as Lurkers, Blood Sisters, The Oracle, and many more. At this point in time, I'm the manager and principal officer at Sear Sound, which is a midtown recording studio uh, to the stars, featuring analog and digital equipment. Thank you. Hey, this is Michael Rosso from Pop Cinema Film Media, producer of the upcoming Joe Sarno Retrospect series, and you're listening to Third Eye Cinema. So, kind of on this point, now, you're just not re-releasing old retro seduction titles and such to high-def and Blu-ray, right? Because while that can certainly be welcome in some cases where there's a much-needed upgrade to the prior release, especially in double features like the one you just did for Vampire Ecstasy and Sinew Sinners, which we reviewed on the website, we're at a point in history where it seems like several labels out there, you know, the quote-unquote boutique labels, have more or less fallen into a pattern of like a self-regurgitating holding pattern where they will sell previous titles that, uh, for restoration and re-release. And in various forums and podcasts over the years, I've often brought up the point that, yeah, you know, that's fine, but there's still plenty of good cult and genre films out there that are waiting for a first-time release. And it seems like labels nowadays are carrying more towards a younger eBay-oriented crowd. You know, release this because it's out of print and somebody's trying to price gouge for it. I mean, obviously there's a demand of sorts for this, but it's not really the same feeling as a new discovery or a first-time release. But from what I've heard here, while you're obviously upgrading some previous releases, you're going beyond all that and digging up titles that have either never before had a DVD release or even a lost film or two along the way. Uh, stuff like Naked Fog, Warm Nights and Hot Pleasures. Uh, and I also understand one of the films we discussed last time around may finally be getting released, which is Misty. Certainly, it's so interesting. It would be great to do a podcast every eight years, right? So interesting <laughs> to revisit. There are a number of labels that either are still existing or uh, new labels. You know, I mean, the Severn Films, which I think was around when we last spoke, uh, Blue Underground. Now, I'm not aware. See, I think you're more tuned, which which is a re-release or as opposed to, you know, I think you're you're thinking, well, why aren't they putting out some stuff that's never been out before? Exactly, right. I think it's just a matter of finding the film elements. I really do. Do you, do you have a wish list of titles? Oh, yeah. 
Really? <laughs> I could send it to you. Do you think that they just don't exist or that labels don't know where they are? I don't know because these things in a lot of cases, and we're not just talking about totally lost films because who knows? You yeah. Know, they've been digging up on the rocks lately, so uh, anything's possible nowadays. Pro- but Probably the most vibrant label is Vinegar Syndrome, which we discussed before yeah. we started recording, which is, you know, they are, they are uh, avid film collectors and uh, also I should mention AGFA. Are you familiar with those guys? Yes. The Alamo Draft House. Yes. I think that in the coming months and years, you're going to start seeing a lot of material that has not been out before because I think that these young labels are just now getting the film elements. For example, something weird video. They're right. not only working with my company, Pop Cinema, but they're also working with AGFA. Right. So there's a number of titles that maybe were out but only out on VHS. Right. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like, I believe Agfa just put out Zodiac Killers, was yes. it? Yes. <laughs> so those are some great titles. The Joe Sarno titles, it, it's, it's just a matter of finding the film elements. In the case of doing the retrospect, um, the late, great Radley Metzger, who just recently passed away, Yeah. Uh, he had um, his company, Audubon, Audubon Films, distributed Warm Night Hot Pleasures, yes. and that was in his library. Nice. And so that was an acquisition on our part based upon us doing the retrospect saying, oh, I remember, you know, Michael Bowen and Scooter McRae mentioning that Radley had this film. So we contacted him and we made that deal. Naked Fog showed up in an auction. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just the craziest thing like that. Like, like it's well, where was it all these years? <laughs> Things are like Hide Out in the Sun, which we released ten, probably 10 years ago. Yeah. It was literally in Doris Wishman's closet, <laughs> like on a top shelf, and Wishman biographer Michael Bowen you know, knew about it, was able to get it out, and we were able to release it. So I think it's just a matter of finding the proper film elements. Some of the Something Weird titles, Joe Sarno titles that we're releasing, we have their elements, and other elements of the same films are turning up Top, top shelf in a storage room uh, yep. in the film center building. Like, oh, well, what is it doing there? I don't know. But it's like reels three and four or something. And I'm able to, you know, I call it Frankenstein together. Right. The best possible film element. From all these prints. Exactly. Confession of a, Confessions of a Young American Housewife, a Joe Sarno release. That was compiled from um, three and a half different film elements of different prints. Uh, you know, so, you know, hats off to, you know, the Agfa guys, hats off to something weird video, uh, and a few film collectors who had it. So, so what are the odds in some other presumably lost Sarno Holy Grails? Like, you know, come ride the wild pink horse. Cause like we were just talking about lately, it seems like every time someone tells us all film elements are lost on this, another label mysteriously manages to land that very film on the table. One of the few reasons you could say that this is a pretty good time to be alive for cult film fans. For fans it's wonderful. Seriously, when you have comp- when you have like labels, you know, home video labels vying for the titles, or even if you have labels competing, I always say you know there are a lot of different film labels. The fans, you have to look at it from a fan perspective and a business perspective. The business perspective is that these labels may not actually get along. Like who's mad at who because of this? Who's infighting because of- they released that? But you know we released that as well. But from a fan perspective, it's like Pink Floyd breaking up. It's like in 1984, fans were treated to two albums, yep. David Gilmore's album <laughs> and Roger Waters' album. So it's like from a, for, from a fan's perspective, it's like you just get more stuff. The, be, the, the, the heat, the, the, the hotter the compete, 
the more product that gets released that fans can gobble up. It's like the Bond franchise. That one year where they had the... The, the Sean Connery one, the, the Thunderbolt film. Yeah. Yep. 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 So. <laughs> so I always look at things from a fan perspective, and I always want to give the fan the best possible thing. So I give kudos, hats off to all of the other film labels out there. Quite frankly, the newer, younger labels, uh, I, I, it's hands down. I'm not, I don't even pretend I could compete with them. They're young. And when you're young, you could walk on water. I know I did it. Yeah. When I was in my late 20s and I started EI Independent Cinema, the idea that we could produce a movie and get it on HBO was just like, like you know, we're just a bunch of kids from New Jersey who went to William Patterson College. That's, oh, that's not going to happen. Right. So if you believe it, sometimes you can make it happen. But, of course, then there's always be careful what you wish for. <laughs> what is at eye level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes at eye level bringing more to you only on the big pop network on blog talk radio at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, and myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. 
So beyond Sarno, I believe you mentioned having a few other classics exploitation directors on the plate. Doris Wishman, Barry Mann, and that you've entered into a deal like you had mentioned a couple of times here with Lisa Verini from Something Weird. So what sort of things can we expect from Film Media on Blue? Both my companies, Pop Cinema and uh, Film Media. Film Media deals with more of the restorations and when we have uh, um, what I call you know beefy film elements, meaning original negatives, and things that take time to craft. Also, film media, we haven't announced yet, but we're also working with new filmmakers. When I say new, I mean filmmakers who produced in the in the 90s and the 2000s, uh, making films like Brian Rockwell, who made Where the Air is Cool and Dark. I just finished restoring his film. So uh, film media is about the craft of filmmaking, and uh, uh, pop cinema, of course, has a variety of different labels. So it's sort of like a feeling. I can't quite describe it of what will be a pop release and what will be a... Um, film media release, but some great stuff coming out. I'm very excited about the collaboration with Something Weird video. I knew Mike Rainey personally. It was great. He's a great example of uh, a guy who who really discovered a massive amount of film and made that his life. Yep. And the interesting thing about Mike Rainey, uh, who passed away a few years ago, yeah. and some of the newer labels are, what happens is Companies start acquiring more films that, I say, can release in their lifetime. Seriously. The amount of film that's sitting at something weird, yeah. and probably the amount of film sitting at Vinegar Syndrome, is there's only X amount of days in the year, only X amount of hands that can handle this stuff. And also, you're also dealing with you know what us as labels never want to talk about, which is the market. Yeah. Because at some years, some years, the market doesn't want to know you. And as I say, and as Sam Sherman says, he probably told me, you're only as good as your distribution. Yeah. Now, from a fan perspective, that may be okay because the true fans uh, uh, troll all of the great sites, you know, like uh, Pop Shock Rock and all of the websites, your website, and right. read reviews, and they'll buy directly from the labels. The right. labels. But those 200 people are not going to keep those labels alive. Yeah, that's the problem. You know, so it's such a big, vast picture. The collaboration with Something Weird, I'm I'm honored because they have a vast library and they're awesome people to work with. And they're working with us because they know of how, you know, you know, I joke about the films I produced and I don't consider myself a serious person. I joke around a lot and I'm a jokey person, but I'm not jokey about my work. I'm very I'm very serious about uh, getting these collections assembled in a manner that that fits them. So the Joe Sarno Retrospect series, it's being distributed by Film Movement in New York City. They're a theatrical company, and they distributed the Joe Sarno documentary. Um, so that's a beautiful fit. I have the library. It's not the full library, of course. Distropix has right. quite a, a few um, Joe Sarno films. And, of course, there are other, other labels. I mean, you have uh, Code Red put out a film called Marcy. That was a Sarno film. Yep. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome was putting out some Sarno films. So, you know, from my perspective, because I'm working with the Sarno estate and Joe's wife, Peggy, what, what, what else am I going to say? I believe we should put it out. <laughs> right. And I, I think they should be collaborations with these labels. It's sort of like the Pink Panther series. It's like, why did the DVDs always got released, but Return of the Pink Panther was never part of the series? Right. Because they were owned by a different distribution company, and they, cannot, they couldn't come together to make that work. Well, until now. 
Yep. There's a Blu-ray series of the Pink Panther series coming out that includes Return, which means they made a deal. Yep. So, you know. Look how many years it took to get the Batman series on, the, on DVD or Blue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, you know, all these strange reasons. You asked about the film Misty. Yes, the film Misty exists. Um, there are some uh, ownership logistical snafus I just need to navigate. Even to this day, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, there are a lot of people in the business who believe things are worth more than they are. Uh, I mean, what is a film worth? Uh, well, it's so funny because, you know, you can go on eBay any day of the week and find, you know. Some crazy inflated price for everything. Some, yeah, or you could find, you know, you can go on a 35 millimeter forum. This is a forum that sells 35 millimeter motion pictures and you can buy a print of, let's say, The Poseidon Adventure. For one hundred dollars. Wow. Now, there's no rights associated with that, right. but you could buy the film element. So, what is the film worth? Well, I don't know. Um, let's say the film's in the public domain, so you can go on the same forum, or you can go on a private auction, or you can go on eBay, and you can find all sorts of stuff like you know, 1960s nudie loops and 1960s uh, 16 millimeter one day wonders that are adult. That are like two hundred two thousand foot real one hour movie, you know, no rights given or implied, right? And you could buy that for one hundred dollars. So, when a filmmaker or a producer owns their a movie and they happen to be elderly, <laughs> they may think that there's more value to the film than there actually is. Uh, my grandfather was convinced that his nineteen sixty nine AMC Matador was worth three thousand dollars in nineteen ninety. Like no. <laughs> People think that they find a 1947 Polaroid, one of the original models, in their closet, or like a 1962 Brownie. Oh, this must be worth. What's it worth? What's well, worth what anyone would pay for it? Right. Which is the beauty of eBay. Which is you know, uh, yonder comes a sucker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't buy OOP out of print. DVDs, but certainly I've listed some and I've seen auctions. I've seen auctions for the out-of-print horror VHS from the 1980s that go for $500. Oof. So this VHS tape that you could buy for a quarter if yep. it was just a few years earlier in some video store that's going out of business yep. now fetches the $500. So what is the value of stuff? Exactly. So tell us a bit more about the restoration process, because I'd assume that once a film's been released in a digital format, whether DVD or streaming, any tweaking can sort of be done from that. But with films not in release since the days of VHS or those that never got a home media release, you have to work with the original film elements. And, you know, we're talking about films from half a century ago or more, so even beyond the likelihood of theft of prints for private collections by theater productions or warehouse workers back in the day, that's a lot of time for prints to wind up held up in bankruptcy or other legal proceedings. Lost due to owners passing on, warehouse fires due to the inherent flammability of nitrate film, or just as bad, the fading vinegar syndrome, if you will, uh, and rot that prints get over time and with improper storage. And then there were prints that were spliced of hot sequences for private use or due to local censorship measures. Prints that are still good up to a certain point then turn unusable all of a sudden. It's a hell of a hurdle for preservationists, particularly once you learn the, uh, leave the more accepted world of mainstream Hollywood film and the critically celebrated start digging around the indie drive-in and grindhouse arena. Oh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a mind-boggling, uh, lengthy process to uh, remaster a film. Uh, in the case of the Sarno retrospect, I'm fortunate because most of the elements are excellent. But we're talking about 
um, especially the pain of you know the 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 nineteen nineties conversion to digital for VHS DVD release of square four by three format films. Right. As the owner of some films, now I'm in the case of the Joe Sarno films, the ones that came out on the original sedu- uh, retro seduction cinema label are being you know I'm going back again and reworking on that film and that what what in, that entails. The the best example are the uh, Joe Sarno German films uh, produced by Chris Neeby. Uh, Chris Neeby, amazing producer who uh, had amazing film elements. So Chris had his prints. He had his original camera negatives. He had his interpositives. These are all film elements that ultimately the interpositive and the negatives that made up, which was the theatrical print that used to get sent to a theater. So, of course, the scramble in the 1970s to uh, get a transfer so that these producers can p- play them on, like, hotels in, like, Spectradine and a bunch of other, you know, Womeco Home Theater, late-night TV, uh, early HBO. Uh, these were many of the things I inherited uh, because um, of my age, and I got involved with home video in the 1990s, and I'm not a theatrical releasing company. So, in buying the Sarno... Uh, film elements from Chris Neeby, I got the whole gamut of releases, including big, clunky one-inch tapes that were used for broadcast that were perfectly acceptable for VHS release, but not acceptable now that people want widescreen, Blu-ray quality, high-definition titles. Exactly. So it it requires the (laughs) the energy (laughs) because, I mean, you know, film elements... Each feature film is five huge reels of 35-millimeter film that weighs a ton, uh, re-inventorying what you have, getting your physical hands on that print, sending it to a, um, a lab, uh, a transfer house, like I use Deluxe okay. here in New Jersey. And, of course, you know, uh, budgeting for it because now you're talking about a whole process of doing something which is you know relatively expensive to take that film element and go through the processes of getting it transferred to which is now a you know a 2K digital file which of course you know it's not going to stop there because you know from 2K now there's 4K okay, which is yeah. better I think there's 6 or 8K in Japan so it's like you know and will I be doing this again in 15 years maybe <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, stumbling blocks of titles that only were the film elements, the, the negatives were destroyed or left at a, uh, at a lab, at a lab uh, abandoned, thrown away, because those filmmakers outside of theatrical and maybe television, that there's no such thing as home video. There was no thought or understanding that you would need these film elements for anything. Exactly. Uh, I mean, back in the day... Producers would say, "Hey, I have a great. I have a great. We have good tape elements, and that that meant something. It's like good beta cam. <laughs> that was the term. <laughs> we have a good beta cam of that. Oh, you know, it's four by three square. It's fuzzy looking now to today's standards. So, in the case of a a film that we're releasing that doesn't have the original negatives, we work with whatever we have. Uh, beggars are not choosy. And then from there, I try to find." In the case of some of Sarno's work that only exists as prints, I try to find as many prints as humanly possible with some great places, great uh, organizations like the Alamo Draft House, which houses a huge library of films, who is amazingly understanding and very generous in their offering to loan materials. So in the case of Confessions of a Young American Housewife, 
It's like the print's very good. The color's very good, but then all of a sudden there's a splice. You know, and like you miss a piece of dialogue. So it's a matter of going, find, going to the second or third print of that, finding that piece, and then editing that in so there's no more splice so it's smooth. It's, it's all right. just making it for the best possible presentation. Do you intend to go beyond this intensity of how you're digging into the Sarno library per se? You know, maybe dig into other people like we had mentioned, like uh, Wishman or the Finleys, because, you know, both have some lost films in their ove that I'd love to get my hands on. Well, uh, it's really a matter of, uh, I see I see myself as what I'm doing with my company as, you know, their projects. Like the Sarno project, it's a multi-year project. It's something I commit to because I have enough film elements to make that work. Uh, the Doris Wishman films, uh, we only have two. And uh, Hideout in the Sun was a great find. Yes. And it's a great release. And it's a great movie. It's a lot of fun. I love that one. <laughs> Prince and the Nature Girl. I sent you the press yes, release on that. that. That was another great find. Um, and it was a lot of fun to work on. And the str- strange thing about that is that, you know, I recently refound all of the elements I was working on. I started working on those elements eight years ago, probably when, when we were talking last <laughs> And everything was there. Like everything, like the whole dialogue track had to be rebuilt. All the extras were there. There's a commentary done. I'm like, oh my God, why isn't this released? <laughs> so we're releasing that. Now, those are the only two Doris Wishman films we have. The other Doris Wishman films, which were released by Something Weird Video, uh, are owned by the producer, not Something Weird. Okay. So it's just a matter of that owner as a producer is looking for the best deal possible. Right. You know, and most producers, and hey, I don't blame them, you know, want money now. Like, hey, how about a nice juicy advance? How about, you know, you know, and and believe me, I understand what that is from a person who back in the early 2000s when DVD was booming, the, the when, when I find old paperwork and I see what advances I were offering people, I mean, you know, you could buy a house, <laughs> you know, because you'd sell 20,000 copies of a movie. Like, I found uh, an Inga rap. I think it was one of the Inga raps. It says, you know, it's numbered edition. It was like number so-and-so of 20,000. I'm like, oh, my God. Now, you know, it was a, it's like being on a different planet. Like well, that, the sell through on Best Buy alone back in those days. Yeah, back, back in those days when pop culture was people got in their car and went and shopped for DVDs. That's what they yep. did at night. Exactly. Like, that was the thing you did. Yep. But now, media has been... Sort of, you know, sort of a democracy now in the media. It's like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, get this on Netflix. I'm gonna get this on Amazon streaming. I'm gonna get this from uh, Pirate Bay. I'm gonna get this from here. You know, and there's also so much media now that, you know, and you know, your Instagram feed and your Facebook feed and, you know, your texting and your, I mean, the media has a lot of competition. So now I think the type of media that I deal with all this cult stuff is really narrowed down. Yeah. To a small group of weirdos, <laughs> myself included. Me too. <laughs> you know, uh, who seek out this stuff. The question is, is that enough people to sustain what I'm doing? So the Sarno Restoration, the series that I'm doing with Film Movement, I mean, this is the first one I'm, I'm doing. Right. The Barry Mann series I'm doing next, and that's because of my collabor- collaboration with Something Weird. Looking forward to that, too. I love Barry Man. And that's great, great stuff. And so any other retrospect? You mentioned Roberta Finlay. Um, you mentioned, what other title? Doris Wishman. Doris Wishman. These are, these are projects. And, you know, if I could think of myself as a record producer, I would like, 
or like owners of these materials to to you know see me as oh well I want Mike to handle this because he's going to do a very comprehensive job. It's very difficult. I want to keep focused on what I'm doing, and I don't. I'm trying not to get distracted with too many crazy other lines. Right. Uh, right. Like there's, uh, there's only so many hours in the day, and only so many releases that we can release, and. I have to also walk the tightrope of the business end of it, which is if I'm releasing four releases a month with a, you know my distributor, if I'm not paying for those hard goods, my distributor's fronting that, which means when do I get paid? Yeah. How do I keep the lights on? How do I how do I keep my how do I keep my employees paid? Exactly. It is a amazing feat. <laughs> <laughs> To keep everything balanced, and also I've been doing this a very long time, and I, you know I wor- you know the way I approach work is as I mentioned very serious, and I'm very serious about my relationships. It's like, you know, I'm I'm not. There's no one getting ripped off. There's no one getting not paid. It's like everyone needs to be paid. All the bills need to be paid. There's no fly by night. Yeah, it'll catch up with you if you let that happen. That's true. So. Well, the more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess, because this broadcast marks something of a coming full circle for yours truly as well, as uh, the Third Eye Podcast was originally born out of the one I had co-hosted with Matt G., who you had uh, worked with previously. And that ran for about uh, six years and a good 150 or more episodes, uh, which was at eye level. And then Third Eye itself gradually moved from an exclusive cult film focus to more of a cult music interview forum. And then as it became no more as a uh, magazine-style review website for film music and other things like Dr. Hugh audio dramas, decadent literature, you name it, uh, we more or less shuttered the podcast after 90 episodes and replaced it with Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, where I and another film critic talked entire genres of global cult cinema for about 50 episodes. And while all episodes are still out there available for download, you can check their respective websites and Facebook pages for more info. Uh, both at eye level and weird scenes, unfortunately, shuttered their doors earlier this year. And while I don't know how often we'll be doing this sort of thing, here I am again doing the Third Eye Cinema podcast, which actually with one of the very first guys we interviewed. So uh, the lesson is you never know where the hell life will take you, kids. <laughs> you don't. So, uh, so Mike, you have any last thoughts or anything you'd like to promote or plug? Uh, yes. Uh, you could um, go to filmmedia.org. And as soon as you go to the site, you'll see either upper or to the right, there's a newsletter you could sign up for. And if you sign up for that newsletter, you will get our information via email on all of our new releases and press releases. And the same thing goes for if you want to know what's going on in the pop cinema world, you can go to alternativecinema.com and there's that same form to fill out. If you pick up a camera and shoot film photography, go to filmphotographyproject.com and there's also a sign up for that too. So, you know, I'm I'm working every day feverishly on uh, uh, stuff, and I'm hoping I could bring to both fans and shooters, people who either shoot movies or shoot still photography, bring my experience to them. And hopefully at the end of the day, like I say most days, even the crappy days, I'm like, you know, I just hold my head in my hand. Up there. I just want to make everybody happy. <laughs> and that's that's it. You know, maybe, who knows, down the road we'll uh, have an update. There you go. And for those interested in the other podcasts, the Ed Eye Level archives are currently located at, as you might expect, archive.org. Search archive.org details Ed Eye Level, all one word, underscore 201703. Or you can look for archive.org forward slash details forward slash the at symbol Ed Eye Level, all one word. 
You could also follow any current updates at facebook.com forward slash at eye level. Weird Scenes you could find on Twitter at Weird Scenes 1. Our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash Weird Scenes 1. Or, of course, the page itself, uh, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. Third Eye Cinema, of course, very active website. Movie reviews, music reviews by the hundreds every month. That is thirdeyecinema.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at Third Eye Cinema. Uh, and you can also reach us on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Third Eye Cinema. So thank you for listening tonight. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Mike Rasso. You can also check our WordPress site for information on our unofficial 90th episode, which was on a dysfunctional podcast with Mickey Thomas from Jefferson Starship. And of course, stay tuned every month for more music reviews, movie reviews, and information about any potential upcoming podcasts, either with Third Eye or any resurgence of weird scenes or at eye level that may occur. You have been listening to Third Eye Sim, the best is yet to come. Stay tuned. Sausage McMuffin with egg from the $1, 2, $3 menu. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal.